My name is Arielle Spiegel, and I am the founder and CEO at CoFertility. Femtech, to me, is using technology to make sure that all of our answers to any of our fertility questions get answered without judgment. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. Before I intro our guest, I want to tell you about some really exciting updates at Femtech Focus. First, we have migrated our virtual community to a new, more interactive platform. We moved our previously publicly available databases of Femtech startups and exits from our website to this new community. You can find the Femtech Institute, which is a self-guided women's health accelerator, to learn how to fundraise, build, and scale your company. I host weekly office hours where I would love to meet with all of you one-on-one. We have an events calendar of all the upcoming women health events around the world, and you have the ability to add yours, too. Sounds awesome, right? Well, it's free to join and only $14.99 a month if you want to unlock the FemPro perks. Join the community by going to femtechfocus.org. The second big announcement is our upcoming virtual jobs fair with our partner at the Bowdoin Group on March 23rd from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Whether you're a student looking for an internship or post-graduation work, or if you're a professional switching industries, this is a great opportunity for you. We'll have an incredible keynote interview with the Bowdoin Group about the current state of the jobs market and what skills people need to work and be successful in femtech. Then you'll have the opportunity to meet virtually in different rooms with different companies and learn about their mission and open positions. If you are a women's health company hiring, this event is for you too. Whether you are looking for interns, a co-founder, making your first official hire, scaling your team, or filling out a whole department, companies from big to small can register to have a virtual booth and meet with hundreds of the top femtech candidates around the world. Register at femtechfocus.org. Alrighty, Fem fans. So in today's episode, I interview Ariel Spiegel, the founder and CEO of CoFertility. CoFertility is a dynamic website where you can get all your fertility questions answered. CoFertility can't make you get pregnant faster, but it can make the waiting less lonely and confusing. I love Ariel's story of how and why she founded CoFertility. She founded it in the middle of her own fertility struggles. She says that she had a great doctor and clinic, but still had questions. Sometimes these questions were too embarrassing to ask. Sometimes she felt stupid for even having them. They happened in the middle of the night. She'd look online, find some answers, but they were incredible or they were out of touch or just completely overwhelming. So she started CoFertility to curate the expert answers to every fertility-related question all in one place. My personal favorite resource they have on the website is a full database of all the funding resources to pay for your fertility treatments. Check this out and more at cofertility.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where are you calling in from? I am in Boston. 
Austin. Awesome. Well, looking at our email thread, we were supposed to do an interview a while ago, but awesome that it's today and it's now because you know, the <laughs> podcast continues to grow. And so it's always really exciting to see um, companies progress, especially now I've been doing this for two years. And so I have some relationships I made two years ago and watching them grow. It, it's been very exciting. And, and although we don't have a personal relationship yet, I have been watching your growth and been very proud to see it. Great. Amazing. Yeah. So much has happened within the last couple of years. <laughs> well, let's kick off our interview by talking about you and your background. Where are you from? Did you go to school? Did you have a career before women's health? And how did you end up here? I, I read some articles. You have a very personal experience. So would love for you to share that with our found, uh, listeners. Sure. Um, yeah, so I my career started off on the marketing side. Um, I always knew I loved engaging with consumers via digital platforms. So I started off, I graduated at the height of the recession. I, I started off on the PR agency side um, because that's just like what I was able to get. Um, and, um, but I knew I wanted to work um, in social. So I made my way onto the social media side of things, eventually um, leaving the agency world and going in-house at a couple of um, big consumer retail and fashion brands. I was at Coach for a couple of years and um, Victoria's Secret Pink for several years, which like what more fun marketing target is there than college women, um, just super inspiring and so ambitious. And it was just so much fun to work there. And I worked, we did some really amazing, amazing partnerships and um, campaigns and worked with really smart women. And it was awesome. Um, but on my own, my husband and I were dealing with a lot of fertility challenges. And ultimately, when all was said and done, we have a 19-month-old son now, but it took us two and a half years to get pregnant with him. And, um, you know, that time frame was filled with multiple rounds of IVF and several years of fertility treatment and a couple of miscarriages and pregnancy losses. And all the while, you know, I felt like even though I was helping bring brands to life, you know, for my job, that that didn't really exist on the content side of things for fertility. Um, and, you know, even though I was living in New York City at the time, I had access to really amazing resources and support. And thankfully, you know, the, the financial means to afford treatment. Anytime I ever Googled any fertility related question, the consumer experience was complete garbage. And it was like forums that looked like they were 100 years old and super janky or blogs that were helpful, but anecdotal and, you know, clinic sites that were very cold and impersonal and had zero brand personality whatsoever. And, um, you know, I felt like there was an opportunity for, um, you know, an experience that provided education um, and content around fertility that felt useful and informative and answered my questions, but still had like a brand personality and tone of voice and, um, you know, that I actually related to. So that's how co-fertility was born. And we say we aim to answer every fertility question out there and uncomplicate the fertility journey. Um, and we launched in June, 2019 and have been growing ever since. And we have a really thriving, amazing, engaged social community. And, you know, we've been adding new content to our site. Um, so yeah, it's been an exciting ride. And, you know, on a personal level, I welcomed my son um, in June of 2020, which 
obviously, you know, really put things in perspective. And um, I even took a little bit of time off, kind of was was focusing on co-fertility on the back burner, but really trying to um, enjoy and focus on the challenges of new motherhood as much as I could. And um, but yeah, it's it's been it's been an exciting personal and professional journey. Well, congratulations on your son. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, so what is co-fertility? What should listeners be thinking of? So we, we say we aim to answer every fertility question out there and, un- and uncomplicate the fertility journey. Um, and what that means is, you know, we are focusing all of our content in a way that really is answering the questions that people actually have and, and the information that they actually want to know about fertility and infertility, everything from, you know, when I started trying to get pregnant, I didn't even know what ovulation was like, and I consider myself a pretty educated person. Um, but because I was the first of my friends to start trying to get pregnant, you know, nobody had, nobody was able to kind of tell me or clue me in on, on how that worked. Um, so everything from like tracking your cycle up until the point of, we say a successful pregnancy is, content and subject matter that we cover. Um, and we have, you know, we have articles. We also have a couple of really useful tools like um, our find a grant tool is the um, most comprehensive database of money saving opportunities for fertility treatment that exists on the internet. So everything from grants, donated services, discounted services, discounted medication, um, things like that all live within that tool. And um, we just hope to make the fertility journey easier for other people. Um, you know, even down to the way that our content is written, you know, we're not giving you comprehensive courses on everything you need to know about a specific topic. We're instead answering that question that you have so you can read it or skim it and like move on with your life. Um, so, you know, we like to say that you can, back when everyone was going into offices, that you could skim an article or browse it, you know, on your way to work and get the answers that you need. Because if you're facing fertility challenges, you are busy enough. Um, So everything from, you know, actual medical information to um, insights and information around how much certain treatments cost or how you can kind of navigate insurance coverage. um, we, We really, we try to cover it all. It's amazing. Um, you know, I can totally relate to the, I don't even know when I was fertile journey. I was a PhD student in genetics, PhD, second or third <laughs> year, had already majored in biology undergrad, like graduated summa cum laude. And I'm not here to like list my resume, but that's how qualified I was to know when women were fertile. And I did an internship for a company that wanted to make an at-home fertility test. And my job was to kind of uh, they were a bunch of tech bros. And so my job was to like kind of demystify fertility. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll do it for them. But I actually learned about fertility through consulting them. I thought we were fertile all month, except when we had our met- our period. I thought mm-hmm. like all month we had a chance to get pregnant and then we had our period and that meant like, oh, we didn't. But actually we were only fertile for like three or four days of the month. And I was like, first of all, why is everyone getting pregnant unexpectedly? Like how are the, how are the forces that be always land on those days, you know? Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I learned so much about basic, basic fertility and anatomy of female organs uh, in a PhD 
consultancy job. So yeah, if you're an everyday woman, you're like, wait, what? I'm not fertile all month. Don't worry. Go to co-fertility. I'm sure they have an article on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like- and it's crazy. Like, and that's, and I, we hear that all the time, you know, that you and I aren't the only examples of that, about how reproductive health education in America is like failing us. And, you know, obviously it's preventing so many unwanted, like teen pregnancies, which is so important and STD prevention and all of that is so, so, so important. But we are, it is instilled in us at a young age that like, if you have sex anytime, anywhere that you will get, that you will get pregnant, or at least there's a chance. And that's just not the case. And, and because of that, you know, we're really just doing a disservice to, you know, everyone for when the time comes that they actually do want to build a family because we're just so unprepared. And there might be additional shame if we all have this paradigm that we're all fertile all the time. And then if you're trying to get pregnant and can't, you might feel even more potentially quote unquote defective. If you have this Mm -hmm. paradigm that you're always, you're supposed to be always fertile. Whereas even if you're, you are fertile, you actually can only get pregnant a certain number of days a month. Right. Like, so interesting thought about that. I didn't really think about that. How do you, how do you know what questions people have? Obviously, I mean, there's so many websites out there for fertility and you were talking about like, there's the medical ones, there's the blog ones, there's the, how did you figure out what, what women or men, anyone in, in the fertility journey, what their actual questions were and what kind of content they actually needed? So we, that's something that we really pride ourselves on, by the way, because there are, you know, there are so many outlets out there that are kind of just like taking editorial liberties and like making guesses about like what they think is important. And at the end of the day, like if a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, like, does anybody care? <laughs> no, um, we were, we are in the business of helping people be empowered to learn more about their fertility in a way that is useful. And, um, you know, we do a lot of research on what types of questions people have, whether that's coming in through social, whether that's coming in through search, whether that's people submitting questions on our site that, you know, they have questions about that we aren't already answering. Um, you know, we try to kind of like aggregate the trends that we're seeing um, and really take those editorial decisions seriously because unfortunately we can't write about everything. Um, so we try to really prioritize what people need to know that they currently aren't getting good answers for. Is there any questions that you were like surprised that people had or like most common question or something, any, any kind of stats like that about the questions? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't necessarily have a stat about the questions, but um, you know, one thing that I'm always like surprised by is one of our, our, one of, one of our um, most visited pages is an article about the side effects of progesterone during IVF. And I wasn't, ex- I like when we were planning, when we plan out our content, like I wasn't necessarily expecting that to be one that just like took off, but it seems like, and I don't know if it's that like the medical community isn't doing a good enough job educating their patients about this topic, but I think it just goes to show that like the consumerization of healthcare is very real. And people are looking for information about this stuff online whether or not they have amazing doctors, um, you know, when you're thinking about something at 3am, you can't just get your doctor on speed dial unless it's an emergency. Um, But, you know, Google is always there. So 
how can we kind of do our part to make sure that when somebody's consulting Dr. Google, that they're getting information that's reliable and trustworthy, you know, that's our mission is just to make sure that, you know, especially as, especially as families are kind of continuing to look different more and more in, you know, with, with the rise of third-party reproduction, for example, you know, we're only adding more layers of complexity and more questions. And that's why, you know, we've kind of really taken a stand that we're aiming to answer every fertility question out there. Um, so that's kind of the stance that we have always taken and that we'll continue to take. Did COVID help or hurt your business? I would say, I would say it helped because I think, I think COVID, I think what we saw with COVID was like, was slash is still, um, you know, in talking about the consumerization of healthcare, like, I think people really took a step back to take matters into their own hands. And, mm. you know, I'm somebody who places a lot of trust in, in Western medicine. And I think, um, I think unfortunately the pandemic has, uh, has brought up a lot of fear and distrust in, in modern medicine, um, among some, but, you know, I, I have always maintained my trust in science and medicine, but I do believe in the power of being your own biggest advocate and taking matters into your own hands. I think we've seen a big uptick in home, not even just home, you know, testing and home uh, and home um, information seeking, but like even home procedures. You know, one one of our um, one of our pages that's on the rise is all about at home insemination, and yeah. that's not necessarily to say that we recommend that, but we were seeing that as a trend really picking up, especially during the pandemic. And we felt an obligation to address it, you know, in a way that felt scientific and not, you know, which doctor E and, um, you know, in a way that felt trustworthy and informative and educational. And to say, you know, here's, here's the lowdown on this topic. Here are the risks, you know, here are the perceived benefits. Um, here's all the information you need to make a choice. Um, and, and, you know, we, we place a lot of in, in, in return for the trust that our users place in us, we really place a lot of trust on our users to kind of like take this information, ideally talk about it with their doctors, because we are, we have a lot of disclaimers on our site. We are not doctors. Um, we do have a really amazing medical advisory board that, um, you know, that's all of our content and like, make sure that we are like clinically legitimate, but, um, we really ultimately, like we're trying to empower our users to have like really thoughtful conversations with their doctors and ask the right questions. Is IVF one of the things that was, could be canceled because of doctor shortages and stuff? Like I know I was listening to NPR this morning, they're talking about like your uh, elected surgeries or once again, being delayed and stuff. So what procedures and fertility were affected by COVID in terms of shortage of supplies or doctors? Well, at the time of us having this conversation, I know there was like a big uproar about what happened in Australia, how IVF procedures were halted in Victoria um, because they were considered elective. And there was like a huge public outcry about, you know, infertility is a disease and it is not like this shouldn't be considered elective. I think they may have reversed that. I would have to go back and take a look. But I remember like about a week ago, this was like a big deal um, because, you know, sometimes the people making the rules just 
don't have that firsthand experience. Yeah. Either aren't, either aren't women or like, because, you know, infertility is, is a men's issue too. And, um, and, you know, uh, infertility is a men's issue too. And they, you know, I don't want to say they don't know what they're talking about because again, I trust the medical community, but like they maybe didn't think that one fully through. Um, and they, um, they halted fertility or IVF procedures at the very least. Um, this is an issue that's actually pretty top of mind for me right now because I'm gearing up for an IVF transfer in late February. Um, and I have not had COVID yet that I know of. Um, I'm convinced that I already had it, but my husband had it. My son and I didn't get it. Um, at this point, I'm kind of like wishing I already had it and had it over with because I'm at a point now where my IVF transfer is scheduled for about a month from now. And if I get COVID within like a week or so of my transfer, my entire cycle will be canceled. And like, that would just be crushing. And it's so frustrating because I don't know, I would like to know if I had it recently because that would determine like how psychotic I need to be about like, do I need to keep my son home from school? Do I need to like be a hermit? Like, obviously we're taking every precaution possible, but like, how nuts do I need to be about it? Um, Quarantined in isolation or yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, like how much my protocol, my protocol is like a two and a half month long thing where like, and thousands of dollars. So I really don't want to mess that up. Like I just, I just told a friend who was getting married in Florida, um, like two weeks before my transfer that I can no longer go because it's, I just can't take the additional risk beyond the risks that I'm just taking anyway. Um, I have to like eliminate everything that feels superfluous and not unnecessary evil. And so that's frustrating is that like, I'm getting an antibodies test, uh, this week, but I've heard things that those are kind of like wishy-washy and aren't really like the most helpful. So, um, yeah, it just sucks. <laughs> wow. I, I'm really grateful for you sharing that first of all. Um, you know, I think that there is, um, a lot of people that at this point they're like, it's just like the common cold, let it rip. But I think we're forgetting about you, you know, your circumstance, you know, my friend, she has a, a preemie baby who is no longer a baby, but she's still very susceptible to things, you know? And it's like us just forfeiting, like our, our protocols and saying like, whatever is it's really detrimental to people who are, it is still absolutely a a real thing. You were talking about like losing thousands of dollars. Let's talk about Mm -hmm. that. So yeah. Incredible survey. Um, uh, let me find the name of it. it was so cool. Money over medicine survey. What was that survey? Why'd you do it? And what did you find? So that was a survey that we did like right around the time that we launched um, really to indicate like there've been lots of conversations about just like how expensive fertility treatment is and can be. And that, those are stats that can be easily found. What I wanted to understand is what's like the ripple effect of that financial impact. And like, what does that mean for, for, to, for those that are undergoing fertility treatment currently or who have undergone it previously? Um, and you know, whether that means the amount of time that they're spending on the phone with insurance, you know, 10% of respondents are spending 10 hours or more a month fighting 
with their insurance company about their coverage for fertility treatment and related causes and, you know, related medications, um, you know, 10 hours a month is like, that's so much time. I'm sorry. It's 15. I'm looking at the survey now, 15% of respondents are spending over 10 hours a month on the phone with insurance providers. And that to me, like that's a second job. Yeah. Like I do whatever you know, I can and, and not call in to Verizon insurance. I do whatever I can and never call those people. Same. <laughs> but like when you, when you're, when there's like thousands of dollars at stake, like some of these medications can cost several thousand dollars. Um, you know, one cycle of IVF could be like $20,000. Like you need to understand this stuff. And that means time spent on the phone with your HR department or your benefits manager or, your clinic's financial coordinator and your insurance provider. I mean, I, it took me two years. I already had a, like a grown, not grown, but like I already had like a six month old son by the time I started seeing any reimbursement checks for my second IVF cycle from my insurance company. What? And I was fighting them that entire time. Like I became buddies with my insurance provider's representative because I, I was able to find that diamond in the rough person who like, knew what they were talking about and was experienced and like cared. And we like, I had her direct extension. Like we became like, we literally had chats every single week, but not everyone's as lucky to do that. Like some people are working two or three jobs just to afford fertility treatment. And it's mind blowing. And people don't realize that like, this means saying no to social gatherings, you know, not just from a pandemic standpoint, but from a financial standpoint, saying no to family gatherings, refinancing your home, um, you know, having to take so much time out of your day to figure out the logistics and coordinate the costs of your fertility treatment. Like it, it, it impacts your marriage. Like there are so many, there's such a ripple effect when it comes to the costs of fertility treatment. And we wanted to make sure that that was something that was getting talked about because yeah, people are talking about like the cost of fertility treatment, but like there's, there's so many more underpinnings to that, that nobody really had kind of peeled back those layers. What is the average cost of fertility treatment and how much does insurance cover if at any? So I'll answer, I'll kind of answer those questions in the reverse. So insurance coverage completely varies. It depends on where you live, um, which, you know, if, if you haven't already, you can go on um, cofertility.com's um, understand fertility insurance tool to kind of select your state and get a very digestible breakdown of what the mandates are in your state, if any. Um, it varies by state. So some states have literally no fertility coverage whatsoever, um, or there, I'm sorry, some states don't require any fertility coverage. Um, certain employers can certainly still obtain, you know, private insurance and do what they want, but it is not required. Um, other states have amazing state mandated fertility treatment coverage. Like I live in Massachusetts, which is one of the best states in the country. Um, you know, up to six cycles of IVF can be covered fully by the state. Um, you know, obviously there are so many loopholes to every state mandate, but, um, but certain states like Massachusetts and Maryland have amazing state mandated coverage. Um, I just looked up North the, Carolina and uh, it says, bummer, North Carolina hasn't yep. any fertility coverage mandates yet. Yep. Wow. And that's why like 
the more we are outspoken about these types of issues and the more that studies like ours, um, you know, kind of come to the forefront, the easier it is to lobby for that type of change. And, um, you know, I work um, or I try, I try to work as closely as I can with um, organizations like Resolve, which is the National Infertility Association, because they're doing amazing work lobbying for better state mandated fertility coverage. And they're doing a ton of advocacy work and um, because that's ultimately what will like help move the needle to help people build families across the country. But um, yeah, so state coverage is, is one air is one thing to figure out um, talking to your employer to find out like what benefits are you entitled to? Um, the answer might be none, um, but it's worth like really figuring out. Um, and then, you know, figuring out in terms of like out of pocket costs, it totally varies on like the type of fertility treatment. So, you know, if you are just doing basic like medicated cycles, um, you know, you would be paying for your monitoring and ultrasounds and blood work and, you know, you know, your clinic visits, initial fertility workup costs. Um, obviously you should prioritize a clinic that's considered in network um, for whatever your insurance coverage is. But those costs can totally vary um, and, and the medication can totally vary that usually those types of medications like a Clomid or a Letrozole or Femara, like usually those tend to be covered by insurance because those are trying to kind of like help with the ovulation process. Um, and if you have a certain type of condition like PCOS or endometriosis or something like that, that you've been diagnosed with, um, that can help too. Um, in terms of making sure that that certain drugs get the coverage that they need. Um, and if you haven't yeah. had six years to get diagnosed with endometriosis and you need that diagnosis in order to get coverage for your fertility right. treatment. Wow. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I was able to, because I, I don't know if I should even be saying this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> I, because I have, perceived endometriosis without having done like a laparoscopy. Um, we, my, my doctor essentially was like, listen, like, this is what we think that you have. Um, so we're going to note, note that you had, that we're treating you for it. Um, so that you're able to get your Lupron covered. Um, and that was the protocol that was successful. That's what I, had my son with, and who knows, it could have just been pure luck. We don't know for certain that that's what it was, but <laughs> down two years later or two and a half years later, now that I'm trying for a second, um, I'm, you know, taking the Lupron again and dealt with the same headache of hours on the phone with my fertility company, with my um, insurance company to make sure that I'm not charged $2,000 for my Lupron. Um, and they had to fix the, the, um, prior authorization and all of that. And now, now it's fine. But, um, but yeah, so figuring out um, with your state, figuring out with your employer, and then talking to your insurance company are kind of like the three things that you need to do to get your ducks in a row um, before dealing with any out-of-pocket costs. And I recommend like taking a beat to like figure all of that out. And like, it takes like a month, like honestly, to like wrap your head around it all because you got to get organized. Um, and then you know, IUI, it totally varies. You know, if you get to that point, it can cost, you know, it can possibly cost out of pocket, like up to $500 per insemination. Um, you're not dealing with like any actual, like in lab insemination, like with IVF, which 
IVF can, can cost, you know, for the very, very basics, like bare, bare, bare minimum, like $10,000, anywhere up to upwards of $20,000. Um, it completely depends on your medications. It completely depends on like what's needed. Um, so that's a cost that can really vary very widely. Um, and, you know, if you, depending on like the anesthesia that's you, like, there are so many variants in costs there that um, you should really like sit down with your clinic and their financial coordinator and actually like line item, like how much do does every single thing cost? Because fertility medicine, unfortunately, is so reactive that you know, what sucks is when you get stuck with a bill you weren't expecting. So it's best to like really take the time to understand it upfront. And you're not going to lose much by taking that like one month. Yeah. And on average, do women have to go through multiple cycles of IVF? It depends. You know, it depends what you're going in for. Um, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not aware of a stat that says that people, a certain amount of people would need to do repeat cycles, but it just depends what you're going in for. Like if, if PCO, if you're going in for PCOS and you're able to have a lot of success with medication and, you know, obviously avoiding hyperstimulation, um, you know, maybe you would just need to do one cycle. I have friends who have nine embryos left and I, I myself have two and I know people who have gotten none. So, um, that's obviously a really disappointing outcome, but, um, yeah, it totally depends. Any other interesting findings from that survey? Um, well, it's been a while since we did it, but I mean, I think, I think at the end of the day, the net net, which kind of like was a positive note to leave it on was um, that almost everyone we surveyed basically said that as much as they gave up because of the financial strain of fertility treatment, they would do it again in a heartbeat to have, if they had children, they would do it again in a heartbeat to have their children. And, you know, I think this survey, the survey really showed just like how cost prohibitive fertility treatment is because our kind of headline stat was that 86% of respondents are declining cover, declining fertility treatment that's recommended by their doctor purely just due to cost. Wow. And that's like a really kind of... <laughs> sad stat um, that, you know, if cost weren't a factor, that there would be many more families. Um, and so that's, so that's kind of a tough pill to swallow, no pun intended. But, um, you know, I think the more that we talk about it, and the more like visibility information like this gets, the, you know, the more accessible, hopefully fertility treatment can become. And you have on your website, a list of resources to help women try to pay for their treatment. Can you tell us about the different options available? Yeah. So what you're talking about is our find a grant tool. Um, and that again, just kind of like in the spirit of uncomplicating the fertility journey, we put together to really consolidate like the vast spread out world of opportunities to help you save money on fertility treatment. And that includes grants or donated services or discounted services. And it's one of those things that it's like, you don't know what you don't know. And, um, you know, I want to say that like 45% of respondents, um, basically said that they were not aware of grant of fertility grants, 
um, but they would be interested to use it if they were aware. Um, so, you know, our tool just makes it easier to find those opportunities. Um, like for example, like there are many clinics that if you're a teacher or in the military, you know, like you might be entitled to certain discount programs that maybe you otherwise didn't go looking for, but um, you basically just select your state and we'll tell you on like a state specific and national level, here are all the opportunities that you may or may not qualify. Here's like the gist. And if you want to learn more or apply, you can just click through, but we'll kind of give you like the overview um, because that's how we do everything. We try to make it as digestible and easy to navigate as possible. Listeners, I cannot recommend more to go to cofertility.com, click find a grant. I put in my state, North Carolina, that just previously told me my state has known coverage. But now <laughs> I'm looking at this long, long, long page of grants that you can apply for and you have everything you need to know like what is it fund who's eligible how much would it be visit the website like you you did you're right you have everything you need to know quick and dirty I cannot believe there's so many grants out there who who are these people like putting money up for this stuff I mean a lot of them are private organizations some are state run some are like publicly funded um it it all completely depends. Some are from the clinics themselves. Um, so, and some are like, even like religious organizations. Um, there are so many out there and like, you're right. Like you would never know that a lot of this existed because it's buried on the internet because, you know, these are nonprofits or whatever. They're not necessarily doing the right marketing to make sure that you're aware. Um, but this stuff exists and it's time that people knew about it so that we can help people create more families. Totally. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. Um, thank you for all you do. I have a few last questions, but we're going to put on our businesswoman hats on for a second. So, okay. you know, I was looking at your website and I could not help but think, how does this company make money? <laughs> it just provides all this badass information that I know you've worked really hard to curate and, you know, validate. So um, for our aspiring entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs, how, is, how does co-fertility make money? So that is a great question. And that's something that I get asked a lot because we, we always get asked, like, do users pay for your content? You have to create an account. And the answer has always been no. Um, and that's not to say like, obviously never say never, but um, you know, when you're experiencing infertility, you have enough on your plate financially. And like, we are the last people to add just another burden to that. So, um, you know, that being said, we are, we're a business and we have costs and in order to kind of continue creating helpful content, um, we have writers, we have researchers and um, we need to keep the business going. So our platform, we are, we work with partners on an affiliate basis. Um, that is what drives the majority of our revenue. Um, we have several like really amazing uh, affiliate partners in place that, and those relationships drive our business. Um, and basically how that works is if somebody um, clicks through to one of our recommended affiliate partners and um, purchases something, um, we get commission for every sale. So the terms of that are different, you know, depending on the partner and it varies, but to like use an example, we might obtain 10% or 15% of all, of, of all um, conversion that happens, you know, as a result of us being the traffic driver or $25 for every sale or whatever that is. Um, 
the vast, vast majority of our site is not affiliate based. Um, and we are very transparent and upfront with our users about the content that is um, because, and also I should add, like, we are not in the business of selling sweet snake oil. We only will partner with others in the fertility space that have a similar mission to ours and that we feel really aligned and confident in recommending. So we, you know, are very, um, we have a lot of partners that we say no to also. Um, and we talk to our medical advisory board about all of these types of partnerships just to make sure that we all feel good about recommending them. And so our users can really trust like when we are recommending something that like we're, we're doing it because we actually believe in it, not because we're just trying to like work with anyone. Yeah. Um, so we, and you know, we used to do content partnerships more like on the social side, but um, we really don't do that as much anymore as we've scaled um, and, and as our traffic has grown, has grown, um, you know, our, our content partnerships were, you see a lot of that, um, but they're, at least we've, I found it very time consuming to do it the right way and a very strategic way with brainstorming and actually creating the content and shooting it. And like, it just, it was, it was, it almost kind of started to feel like a distraction to um, other more, um, more valuable parts of the business. So, um, so that's why, you know, unless there was something that was really worth our while, we don't typically do content partnerships too much anymore like that. Yeah. Well, um, you know, B2B affiliate is a great, strong business model. So that's awesome because women pay for enough things. And I love seeing more and more femtech companies being like, we're going to charge your employer, girl. Like you're good. Like you, you've paid enough. We're going to charge this person and they <laughs> yeah. are going to give it to you. You know, um, our last two questions are questions our listeners love. The first one is we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating in your opinion? So one area that I, two areas that I'm really excited about. Um, I think that we are not doing enough in the third party reproduction space, um, you know, coming and not even just from an egg donor stance, but like sperm donors and gestational carriers too. Like that is a growing industry and um, there are going to be some exciting things um, coming up down the line for co-fertility in that space um, that I can't talk about yet, but um but we are super excited to hopefully make a bigger impact in that realm because um, that is just such an underserved market and the experience, um, the experience you, both in being a donor or, you know, or, or looking for a donor is just pretty poor. Um, so um, there may or may not be more to come on that, um, but uh, I think that that's a huge area of opportunity um, to really help those families who need an extra hand in building their family. Um, the other area that I think is definitely ripe for disruption is on the perimenopausal side. Um, I think, I don't think that anyone is focusing on that demographic in a way that they deserve. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily like overtly fertility related, but um, femtech entrepreneurs out there should definitely, um, you know, even though one might think that like boomers and middle-aged women, maybe like they might not consider them like the sexiest target, but there's money to be made there. Um, and not only money, but just like impact to be made there by focusing on that demographic. So um, I definitely think that that's an area that um, needs more love. 
I love it. Yes. Uh, and our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Well, I love to say a rising tide lifts all ships. And, you know, I think that the interest and influx in, uh, in innovation in the femtech world is amazing. And, you know, it really, it helps all of us. Um, so I think just like that sense of community, um, I think we need more of that. I think podcasts like this one are amazing um, for, for this uh, club of um, disruptors in the femtech space. Um, I don't even want to just say women because I think, um, you know, any gender can participate in this industry. Um, and I think we would welcome them. Um, I think we, or maybe I speak for the industry when I say that we, anyone who is excited to participate in this space, um, I think we're a pretty inclusive community, but um, opportunities for us to learn from one another like this podcast, um, I would definitely take more of those opportunities for sure. Very cool. Well, Ariel, thank you so much for your time today. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my interview with Ariel Spiegel, the founder and CEO of CoFertility. Get your expert answers to your fertility questions at cofertility.com. Alrighty, Fem fans, don't forget to register for our jobs fair happening on March 23rd from 12 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Join our new virtual community and become a Fem Pro member for only $14.99 a month to access all of our assets of the Femtech community, like our databases and self-guided Femtech Accelerator. Please consider supporting Femtech Focus by giving the show a five-star review and becoming a monthly donor to our organization. Subscribe to our newsletter and know all the new events coming up. All this can be done at femtechfocus.org. Until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.